0: In today's world, there are pluses and minuses to running an independent record label, and depending on whom you're talking to, it's either considered madness, suicidal, or the challenge of a lifetime. Kansas City native Roy Felton figures that if it's any of those three, much less a sucker punch combo package, he's up for it and ready to face it all head on. In 2000, already a bedroom living scenester entrepreneur back in KC, Felton decided to take his punk DIY ethic out to the west coast to merge his startup label Arise Records with the indie booking agency The Militia Group, run by his friend Chad Pearson. Within two years, the label had built up a roster including Rufio, Copeland, The Rocket Summer, and Acceptance, rounding out the year 2002 with the before-mentioned Rufio's Perhaps I Suppose selling over 100,000 units. Within three more years, The Militia Group, despite weathering the downloading storm like every other music label, had collectively sold over 1.2 million physical albums, more than 2.7 million digital downloads, and generated over $21 million in retail sales. New artists to the label such as Cartel, Branston, the Appleseed Cass, Reeve Oliver, Love Drug, and the Panic Division ultimately helped reach those numbers, no doubt. After Pearson left the label in 2007 to start up Pias for Panda merchandising, Felton continued on by securing the label's future by turning it into a full-fledged artist development company through creative partnerships with its artists, even as some of its more successful artists moved on to major label pastures. As Felton himself describes his company's role, it's about providing services to our artists, not about owning their masters. In today's world, with physical CD sales dropping 16.5% for the first half of 2008 compared to the previous year, an increasing number of artists jumping ship from label contracts to their own DIY business models, and a severely unfriendly music retail environment to new artists, today's record companies are not only playing financial wizardry with their own future, but they're also having to multitask themselves as consumer psychologists and guerrilla micro-trend marketing analysts. And you thought running a record company these days just meant building up an army of MySpace friends. Either way, Rory Felton assures us he's up for the challenge. This is Mike Shea. One of the things I gotta ask you right off the bat is, uh, and this is like uh, the "why did you start your band" jo- uh, line, but what in God's name made you want to start get involved in a record company? Because you didn't start it;
1: you came in at a later date. Uh, actually, n- let me correct you. Um, I'm already wrong. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, when you're when you're a young teenager and you catch the rock and roll bug, um, especially in a small midwestern town in America like Kansas City, where I grew up. Uh, not only do you play in a band, but you, you print a zine, you, you book local shows, uh, you put together shows, you, you go out and support other bands every day of the week or at least every weekend. Um, the, the scene of music or the idea of music or underground American music in and of itself is more important than just one band. And so the natural progression of that is by the time I got to 16 and, oh, my band hadn't made it yet, uh, I just naturally started putting out my friend's records. Um, my friend Brett was in a band called Zeo at the time. This was 98. And he had a side project called the Juliana Theory. And I put out their first EP, uh, which was a split with another uh, Pennsylvania local band. And then uh, also in the 90s, I put out bands like uh, Legends of Rodeo, 7-inch, which uh, the singer John Ralston is actually now signed to Vagrant as a solo artist. So I kind of joke that I called that about 10 years too early. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I did that in high school in Kansas City. I, I put out some other EPs and whatnot. Uh, and then when I was 18, I moved to L.A. to go to school. And my friend Chad was doing a booking agency as the Militia Group. And so he basically took that moniker and, and combined it with what I was doing as a Rise Records and formed the Militia Group as a record company. So, you know, the next then obvious question may be,
0: you started putting out seven and you start putting any pieces, you start putting out this, these releases. but
1: where did you get the rules? Like Oh you, you don't know them. You, you're 16 and, and you just you go with your intuition what you think you're supposed to do. You, you f- somehow find uh, a manufacturer. And you start asking them questions as far as, well, what do I need to give you for you to actually make a CD for me? So you learn about the artwork specifications. You learn about the master specifications. It's all by trial and error, practically. You learn about how to deal with the studio, how much a record actually costs to record. Um, I remember putting together, I still have some of the initial P&Ls that I did for my initial records um, in Excel that I just was like, all right, X number of dollars for recording, X number of dollars for manufacturing. I need to sell... Y number of albums at you know Z dollars to actually make my money back, and
0: but was it something like it was in high school? You were the guy that was a, you were always kind of proficient with numbers,
1: or you had a yeah. business sense? Or uh, my, my parents have run a small business for 40 years, uh, and then in math, uh, though I was never that great at English or vocabulary, or spelling, mathematics, I. I was fortunate enough to excel in, and, um, you know, by my senior year in high school, there was no more math classes I could take at my high school or at the junior college next to my high school. Uh, I I aced mathematics in my SAT, and that's always been a strong point for me.
0: So were you always the, kind of like that friend, you know, um, you know, maybe friends of yours were starting bands or something like that, or maybe, you know, especially as Rise was, was getting moving and more was going on uh were you just naturally the guy that that bands kind of came to and said you know we're artists but that guy's a business manager you know rory what do, what do we do <laughs> kind of like the default uh, guy kind of like the designated driver for, for the management
1: it's funny because I, I really rebelled against that title uh I, I wanted to be the the artist the creative you know insane kind of crazy guy um but in the end you kind of naturally go with what you do well and um for better or worse, I've always just had a natural common sense, um, I guess, small business mindset, if you will. You know, basic profit and loss, cash flow, um, operations, logistics, administration, those type of things come quite easy to me, yeah. You think that sometimes,
0: uh, you know, it's it's uh, kind of like, since you have that side of you that kind of like a secret desire to be that lifestyle, to be the lead singer, be the the guitarist in the the band that's picking up? Like you wish you were like going on the road with them and doing all that stuff and kind of like you struggle within yourself sometimes? I
1: I did for the first year. Really? uh, And then after that, I really uh, began to enjoy uh, the positive aspects of what my, my, my occupation provided for me. One, I get to have a stable home where I get to be a part of a community. I don't have to leave all the time, though I do travel a lot for work. It's not like I have to be on the road 300 dates a year. Um, and I began to really enjoy that and take advantage of that and, um, the quality of life I, I realized for, um, someone who gets to, one, work for themselves and two, uh, stay in a location and kind of call the shots in their life, so to speak, uh, ruled out any other option I would have had, you know? Uh, funny story, I actually played for a few days in a metal band in 2000 called As I Lay Dying, uh, way before- Uh, Unknown, totally unknown. (laughs) Way before they ever played a show. Uh, Tim Lambesis asked me to come on board and there was a moment where I was like do I start a label or do I play in a metal band and I realized I would have got I would have got too bored playing the same riffs over and over probably within two months that's the other thing (laughs) for anybody who has an appreciation for just uh, creative talent whether it be visual art uh, or or an audio medium or whatever it might be um, if if you have an appreciation for it you, you don't just like one style you like all these different styles and and my, like a lot of people's, musical taste is so diverse, you know? Um, even if you look at the roster, granted some of our more well-known artists fall into one kind of more of a power pop type niche. but we have artists like Jill Kniff, who was the singer in Luscious Jackson. We have the Appleseed cast, which is like this Mogwai type, wall of sound type band. Uh, we have Dennis and Whitmer, who's part of that neo-folk scene with Sufjan Stevens and Rosie Thomas, and things like that that I really love and really appreciate, um, which I think Adds to to everything we do. So for me, I get a, I get a uh, a better more of a joy out of working with a variety of creative mediums rather than if I was in a band, I'd be just doing one thing, which I think I would get sick of really quick. Plus, if that scene goes up and down really quick, then it's it's done, you know.
0: So when you're kind of the when you're the owner or even a co-owner for those first couple of years there, um, once you once you get, once you moved out to L.A., um, the uh, uh was it something where you kind of naturally felt that you were um th- th- that you were always perceived to be a lot older than you were
1: uh oh good question and did that did that kind of bum you out sometimes no 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 not necessarily i i think people always thought I, before they met me that i was going to be older but then um, it always got around pretty quickly that I was young. The positive the the minuses is the starting on The positive is, is you learn really quick, and my learning curve went skyrocketed when I hit 18, 19, 20 years old when all these major labels were calling me to buy out these bands. And so you learn really quickly and how to react to that. You're like, oh, I do need a lawyer oh, I do need an accountant. These things that you you kind of shun because of your Fugazi-esque type upbringing, uh, you realize is somewhat of a necess- necessary to to just operations and whatnot. Um, so, no, I, I always thought it was a strength, you know, because now I can look back being 26 over the past 10 years of being in the record business and be like, um, all those mistakes, all the things that I've learned uh, through trial and error, granted there were some mistakes, but n- nothing huge enough, you know, um, it all it all adds to who I am today, and it all I, I got to grow from it, and I got to learn from it. But I'd say the the biggest issue I had when I was young is uh, learning to communicate. Uh, mm. um, that you when when you don't know anything, uh, you make up for that by just like talking, you know, in some sort of different direction. And and so I I think there are obviously some mistakes I made in the way I communicated in different aspects to a variety of different people, but. Uh, I can say very fortunately I learned from that and I got to grow from that. And I feel very blessed to have accomplished what we've accomplished in a short period of time and still feel like I have, you know, the rest of my life ahead of me to continue to build this thing.
0: So when you, when you went out to L.A. and you, you merged with the Militia Group, the booking agency, mm-hmm. um, that's another part that a lot of, uh, especially today, where you, you're starting to see some consolidation going on. Uh, within the scene uh, between smaller labels, merged companies with labels, booking agents with this. And it, it, as a, as something kind of like you started Rise, and that's your baby. And now you're going to go out there, and now you're going to merge. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of psyche reevaluation at that point because you're going to have to start learning to kind of give up that overall authority.
1: Yeah, the the thing was, though, it was so small at the time, and, and so was the militia group. The militia group was so small. They're both just one-man operations. That the It was more like just like we, we saw the benefit of merging and, and you know combining our circles together to make it bigger there was the the idea of a merge really wasn 't there as much it was like this is a real partnership yeah. so there wasn 't really that much of a, a struggle within i mean did
0: you did the two of you kind of sit down and was there any sort of delineation or was it some sort of uh, good cop, bad cop scenarios. Sometimes you guys had to put together. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> there the were, but I don't know if they're necessarily on purpose. <laughs> uh, I, I, being the the, the financial trial guy, by ignorance, I love yeah. It. <laughs> I being the financial and legal guy, um, just by default became the bad cop all the time. And so,
0: thus, do you think that the? Uh, actually, I had a question I was going to ask later, but I'm going to I'm going to say it now because it kind of ties in with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever met a band that in a moment of either uh, of uh, sadness, uh, depression, kind of like, what the hell am I doing with my life? sadness, or in a, or in a, or in a moment of uh, drunken stupor, had said, my record company sucks. I hate them. They're ripping me <laughs> off. They don't pay me. They won't give me tours. Blah, 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 blah. So the record company's always the bad guy. Uh-huh. And uh, for better or for worse, the, the record companies, especially indies, get bad raps. And it's you know it's always two sides of a story. There's two whatever, um, for the 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 bands that are out there today, listening to this, the young bands that aren't signed yet, mm-hmm. dispel some of the myths of the big bad record company. Maybe there's things that you can explain and say. Well, you know when you hear this, this is why that is. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, there's a lot. Where do I start? Uh, I guess I th- guess worst. It- start with the worst. <laughs> the worst myth. Yeah. Like, why does a band say?
1: Whenever we have a new band, uh, without fail, uh, and I'm I'm sure every other independent label can testify this, the day the record comes out, um, I get 100 calls. Not 100. I get one call from the guy, one of the guys in the band, that says they had 100 friends that looked around for the record that couldn't find it in stores. Mm. And I was like, well, my first question is, did your friend ask the clerk if it was in the back? And if they pulled it out of the warehouse. And like, well, no. Well, you should ask them that. Two, your friend asked the clerk uh, to look into the computer to see if they even were bringing it in? Uh, well, they don't have an answer for that question either. Then I can't help them because I don't know what retailer it was, where it was located. Um, and even if they were meant to have it, I don't know. You know? Um, the reality is when you're a, a your brand new artist and your debut record comes out, uh, the retailers are not familiar with you. You know, so they're not going to bring in your record in mass quantities unless there's some sort of outrageous major buzz there, and and the the, the new reality of retail is is I just heard yesterday Best Buy just closed all their re, all their regional programs, so they're somewhat putting a knife in in any sort of way to partner with developing artists, um, and so we as a label have to be more creative and. Uh, think outside the box to to give these retailers more incentive to take risks on newer artists. So any new artist, whenever your record first comes out on an independent label, um, uh, everyone's doing their best to get the records into stores. And by no means, it's it's a long process from uh, the people at the label to the distributor personnel to the retail buyers to the retail clerks for the record to actually get into stores. You know, fortunately now we have iTunes and and Amazon and all these other digital service providers download punk where kids, uh, the records are always available on the release date.
0: But is it still kind of hard to get that psyche from the new band members saying, well, if I can't be found at every Best Buy, thus I am not going to be successful? Even though you do have the Amazons and the Eaterpunks and the iTunes, which are available to anybody on the planet.
1: Yeah. You have to, one thing you have to realize is Best Buy has to convince that your band is worthwhile. And so they may not bring in a tremendous number of units day one. However, if it sells well through on day one and day two, they will reorder by the end of the week. And getting consistent reorders week after week after week looks a hell of a lot better than overshipping on release date and then getting a bunch of returns. Because what the artist doesn't realize and what the artist manager who's usually new, doesn't realize, is that if you overship on a record and they all come back and you have a, let's say, a 50% return rate with a retailer like Best Buy or Walmart, um, they see that when your next record's coming out. And they absolutely take that into consideration over anything else and when deciding how many units to bring in on your next title. So that's one issue as a new artist, Uh, some of the myths as far as getting records in the stores. I mean, look, we've been able to ship. We've shipped as little as 2,000 records. We've shipped as many as 100,000 records on on different titles. And and there's always going to be holes, you know. But we do our best uh, in collecting the information from fans and from the artists themselves as far as what retailers may not have it. And we provide answers as soon as possible as to why they don't have the title. Perhaps it was in the back. Perhaps it's still in transit on a truck. Or perhaps they they just weren't bringing in the title because they didn't think that region was right for your band right away. So what would be the second largest myth? We'll just take the top two.
0: What was the question? Myths about independent labels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's, you know, the big bad independent label. What's the biggest, what are those myths? Um.
1: If you're a band and you lean to more of the pop side of things in the sense that you're writing songs that, that... in a sense, fit some sort of a pop mass media format. Um, you, your goal, your quote-unquote goal, might be to be on a major label at some day. And so you 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 may have a lawyer or uh, or an uninformed manager tell you, hey, when you sign to a label or an independent label, sign you really only want to do one or two records, do a one-off or a one-plus-one, which is called, a, you know. One, one record with uh, the record company having the, the one other option. And I think the big issue with that is if you're not giving your label partner, your partner in this, because it really is a partnership, you know, the label can only work as hard as the band's working. If you're not touring, it's, there's not a whole lot that the label can do around your career for you to, to benefit you. However, if you are touring and you are leading the charge, so to speak, it provides the label with with no excuse to be doing what they need to be doing around that, you know? And I can firmly say that for every band on our label that has worked hard, that has toured hard, we've been right there side by side and helped build their career. Um, for the bands that don't work hard and don't tour, it, it really ties our hands, you know? And right. then you get blamed for it anyway. Absolutely. If if if, if a band does <laughs> amazingly well, super, super well, uh, it's be, uh, look, I'm not taking away. They obviously wrote the songs. It's definitely the band, but... You know, the, the label obviously played, quote-unquote, a minor role in it. Or if the, band, if the record completely failed, uh, it's because the label didn't market it appropriately. Not because, you know, the band wrote the wrong album in that point in their career or whatever it might be. Well, okay, we do these uh, music breaks. Am I being too honest here?
0: You can never be too honest. I feel like
1: people... Yeah.
0: When you start telling me about unwanted pregnancies, <laughs> STDs that people got in bands, things like that, then, then we're kind of going the TMZ route, and then it gets really exciting. Yeah. So, um, And you can kind of intersperse that between the record retailer conversation, too. just kind of <laughs> breaks people's interest. Um, uh, so let's go back to when you were back in uh, Kansas City. And uh, uh, give me the two songs that... There had to have been... Uh, were you working in an office? Or were you working out of, like, your apartment or your, no, your
1: parents' but, house? Yeah, my, my bedroom in high school, yeah. Your bedroom in high school. Okay. Yeah.
0: So while you were kind of doing your work, there had to have been a couple records that you had on all the time that were, like, your work records. Okay. The two that, it's, like, that just kept you... I don't know what mm-hmm. it was. Um, give me two songs by two bands, any bands, any songs, that you can kind of go back in that time frame. And when you hear them now on your iPod that you haven't uploaded... Um, what they take the, they take you back to that time period.
1: Oh yeah. Um, uh, I'm terrible with names of songs. I always just know like the first song on a particular record. Uh, Sunny D Real Estate Diary, the the first track. The name escapes me off the top of my head, but absolutely like that's summed up. I think the record came out in '95, and um, for if you lived in the Midwest, for some reason like that band influenced a lot of bands that came out of the Midwest around that time. Uh, in Lawrence and Kansas City, there were bands like Boys Life, Giant's Chair. Um, Kill Creek, uh, then came The Get Up Kids, The Anniversary, The Casket Lottery, Coalesce, Reggie and the Full Effect. Um, all these bands that were happening in the mid to late 90s. Um, so I definitely, any anything by Sunny Day Real Estate was definitely a big deal at that point. Uh, and then, I mean, I'll, I I guess I'd just go with uh, a Kansas City band. Um, Don't Hate Me, track two, the Get Up Kids on Four Minute Mile. I mean, when that record came out, I think it was 97, I would have been a freshman or sophomore in high school. And there's a period of time I distinctly remember for probably six months when I saw that band play every single weekend. This was before they had a keyboard, before uh, James joined the band, he was still playing drums for Coalesce. and that band just summed up that time of life with me. Like that was like that was like our hometown heroes. They were like our local older brothers, so to speak. That I would geek out about at the record stores, and and we were we were so proud to have like what I considered the best band in the world at that time uh, to be this local unknown band from Kansas City. Um, now they they put out their next record, something to write home about, and that took off and and opened up a lot of doors for them. But that was a really fun time in music. That was like we felt that. It's really cool when you feel like the best band in the world is your band in your back pocket and nobody else really knows about it. And you can see him play every single weekend with 75 of your closest friends and like yell every word and have a blast, you know.
0: kind of talked uh, before about the myths that young bands have about the big, bad indie labels um, that they hear from other band members on the road or whatever the deal is. But let's talk a little bit about, uh, there's a big debate, there's a big debate um, where kind of somewhat newer bands are going, do I sign with, do I stay in the indie i or mm-hmm. do I go up to the major that's courting me? Yeah. And... Uh, the, you can pretty much be assured that if there's any sort of an indie band that's been on the cover of AP in the past year, they've been heavily courted in the meantime by some major to mm-hmm. t- take them up. So uh, what are the things realistically that you would use in your defense as a militia group um, to go back to the band's management and, or the band and say, these are the things I can provide for you that the major can't? And then on the flip side of that, are there things that a major can provide that an indie can't in today's music industry? Mm-hmm. Not not five years ago. Yeah, today. Right now.
1: 2008. Uh, I think it goes both ways. Absolutely. Really? Um, I think what an indie can do, or at least what I will absolutely, if a band is on our label, um, I can absolutely commit and say, look, you're going to have a team around your band. Uh, a team working all media levels, whether it be online, whether it be print, mm-hmm. whether it be television, Um a team that'll be around every single tour, whether it be just doing local PR in every in every uh, regional market or sending out posters and flyers to the venues and to the promoters. Um, we will grow with the band uh, as long as the band's working hard. You know, we will be there along every single way. We're willing to continue to spend money on a project twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months into an album cycle, uh, where I absolutely know for a fact a major label wouldn't. You know. Um, So we can, if you're looking to build your career on a on a and and your concern and your desire is to longevity, to have a long-term career, um, I think an independent is definitely the way to go um, for as long as you can. You know, the only time I would ever recommend possibly for a band going up is if they're at the point that they were selling so many records. um, But what's that number? This day. It's changed. I mean, that gets into my whole other discussion. You know, we can. all right, let, let's look at let's let's look at music as a whole. All right. Um, mainstream music is is more and more and more becoming a niche because of the advent of all these new medias. I've advent of the, the internet, advent of video games and all these other media formats that are taking k- kids' attentions away from radio and from television. Um, so if you're into goth music. You know, you go to your goth music websites and you put up your your blinders, and that's all you pay attention to. That's all you care about. It's like the new goth bands that are coming up. You're not li- you're not watching MTV. You're not watching MTV Two. You're not listening to the radio because all you want to do is listen to goth. And oh, maybe it's satellite radio. Maybe it's a goth station on satellite radio. So you're just focused on your niche, and you're not even being exposed to anything outside of that. Um, the fans that would be into the mainstream pop music is not becoming just a niche in and of itself. That's riding along right next to. You know the the punk scene and the indie scene and whatever else there might be, um, so I think the idea of a band selling, you know, uh, without a doubt, the band selling 10 million records is gone. That will never happen again. Um, I think bands can possibly sell a million records, maybe a little bit more now, but it's it's that is a fluke. It is it is one time type of explosion, and the, and the 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 chances that that'll continue on an album by album basis is is one in a hundred. You know. So you, you focus on who's marketing to the niche because you gotta, you gotta be part of a niche now. And I think the, I think the key is trying to conquer that niche in all the different medium formats, you know, whether it be obviously online, uh, in print and in television. Um,
0: so when you sell so many units, you're saying that's about the time that you should go to a major or you should think about it. And what is that? It's tough, you know? All
1: right. What do you got here? here, Half a million units. here, Here are the pros and cons that you're weighing, you know? Um, this major label may advance me X number of dollars that will allow me to, you know, put a down payment on a house, or um, you know, pay off some bills or pay off some debt or whatever it might be. Um, the the cons are. You know, that executive that you signed with may not be there tomorrow. He may be at a different company that's competing with that company. And when the new executive rolls in, because he was not part of the team that brought you in, he has no personal attachment to your project. You know, he's never going to get the credit for bringing you in, you know? Have you seen this sort
0: of thing happen? Where... Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Look, we've done we've done nine deals with major labels. Uh, ex- uh, let's start. Noise Ratchet went to American. Uh, Acceptance went to Columbia. Love Drug went to Columbia. We took it back. Cartel went to Epic. Uh... Revolver went to Capitol, Rocket Summer went to Island Def Jam, and Copeland went to Columbia, and then we did a JV type deal with Epic on, a, on an artist called Ronnie Day. Um, in all those instances, I really can't point to one that I thought was really successful for the band, you know? Hmm. Um, now other people have different track records, but that's ours at least. you know I can say, look, every time the band went onto to the major label, I, I don't know what that major label could have done for that band that helped develop their career that we couldn't have done in time on a natural process, you know? I think what happens when you jump to the major is they want this explosion right away, and they want to throw it against the wall, and they want to be everywhere right away so they can create this, uh, the perception that the band is huge and that the perception that the band is everywhere, and then eventually, like, the whole idea is the reality catches up with the perception, and the band is huge and the band is everywhere. Um, but if it doesn't happen within a short period of time, they just have to move on to their next project. Um... Yeah, I, the whole major label thing, man. Um, look, I've never hated on it because uh, without a doubt, I've never held a band back. You know, If a band has wanted to move on, I will tell them the pros and cons of, of their decision process and what they want to do. Um, but I won't hold them back. You know, Not to be vindictive or
0: suggest vindictiveness, mm-hmm. but was there ever a moment where it was the end of the day, Friday, you were still at work, you just found out that some some band manager, some band member, the guitarist from some band that went up to one of the majors, it's been having a hell of a time or got screwed over, who knows what, calls you up, gives you the tale of woe, you know, God, we never should have left, et cetera. And then you hang up and you're sitting there kind of saying to yourself,
1: "Told you guys." Uh, no, not really, because I think at the end of the day, it's like, look, man, uh, my occupation is is to develop, is to be a part of developing careers for artists, you know. Uh, and if I can be a part of that in any facet, in any level, I, you know, I feel blessed and I feel um, excited to be a part of a creative medium and a creative process. So look, if any of our bands ever went, moved up and wanted to come back, by all means, we'd be on board. You know, we'd be stoked come on back. You know, we'd love to be a part of it. And it's never a, I told you so, because look, these this are bands' lives. These are bands' careers. You, you care about them more than just that spite it's not about me it's not about the militia group it's never been about the brand it's about developing careers for artists you know and and i feel like we can we can honestly say that across our history unlike some independent labels we've never pushed our brand we've never pushed the militia group as like this big thing it's always been about each kind of like victory or something like that right like they pushed the brand oh okay (laughs) (laughs) look other other labels might have other business models and I'm not, I'm not, okay. hey, I'm not, I'm not um, downplaying anyone else's business model. Look, uh, some some independent labels' business model might be signed. Let's sign ten. Well, I, I wasn't meaning that in a negative way. I I'm know. just saying that there's some of okay, more absolutely. about the brand. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I wasn't trying to set you up for something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I, I get this call next week. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. no. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah, look. I mean, they have. You know what? He has a really strong brand, and sure. Victory, Victory sells records. You could be. No offense, but you could be a really dumbed-down version of a militia band on Victory and still sell twenty to 30,000 records because you're on Victory Records. Not because you're a great band, but because you're on Victory Records. And so to c- come out and see these bands complain about being on this label, I'm kind of like, whoa, wait a second. You would have never even passed 50,000 records had you not been on Victory Records and they weren't pouring all that money into you. You know, so it's, like, it's funny to see these bands kind of complain about being on a label later on. when it really is, I mean, being on that label was a part of the success they had had, you know. For us, look, it's just not my business model. It's not my personality. Um, to be up in front, you know, I, I'm just a behind-the-scenes type of guy. I enjoy that. I enjoy working with a variety of artists that work on lots of different levels um, and, and different... There's just so many different genres. We're not a genre-oriented label Um and I take pride in that. I like I like the variety of the records we put out. You know, I don't want to put out 10 different cartels or 10 different rocket summers. I'd rather put out one of that, you know. Look, we have the Rocket Summer. Why do I need another one? You know? So,
0: you just kind of said something there uh that just had me spoke it's kind of a more of a a theoretical question, but um when you said you wouldn't have sold x number of records if you weren't on that label and the money they would have put behind it. Mm-hmm. So can so can Money hide
1: lack of talent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, look. I mean, go look at look the last 10 years of all the bands that are broken. Um, were those bands, you know, that much more talented than the other bands? Maybe. Mm, I don't know. It's highly debatable. You know, look, I think that there's, there's never been an ongoing theme of talent relating to success in pop music. And it's because it is. It's pop music. It's pop. It's not... <laughs> this is going to get me into trouble. <laughs> I don't look at rock bands as real art. And, and I don't even have you drunk yet, so Yeah, that's uh, good. it's good. It's, it's... Look, I mean... There's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough, you know? Like, it's pop art. It's it's different than classical music. Look, you look at these people who who created these amazing classical pieces that were, you know, 12 or 15 or 30, 40 minutes long. They're beautiful. They're amazing. They're artistic. They, they take you up, and, and if you... Actually paying attention and allow yourself to be whisked away, you will be moved, you know? Um, I watched a band like Sigur and as much as I heard everyone say, oh, you know, tears were coming out of my face when I saw that band, and I was like, yeah, right, that's... You don't know what you-. I went and saw them, and tears were coming out of my face. Could I explain it? No, not necessarily. Um, there's something transcendent. There's something ethereal. There's something um, metaphysical to, to what they do that that moves people, and I think bands have the ability to do that. However, that doesn't always... Uh, equal success you know I mean all that's timing it's where you know radio's going at that's a given time it's what MTV's into at a given time a lot of that has to do with what bands are successful and what's not not necessarily talent you know so you are the true sense of an entrepreneur
0: I mean starting it out of high school literally yeah yeah, yeah, so, yeah so you are so and, and in many ways you're a gorilla. you're, you're guerrilla warfare you're guerrilla and your thinking uh, the way that you have to make your company survive a recession or, a da- or you know, illegal downloading, crippling the industry, things uh, like that. You have to think fast. You were
1: going to say. Uh, I think it's debatable whether we're actually in a recession. But oh, that's, that's right. a whole other topic. Okay. <laughs> Gross domestic product was up 0.8% last quarter. Unemployment's down. I don't know. The media, it's kind of a little weird. 13,000 Dow Jones just went over. M- when I start my my <laughs> weekly a political podcast, oh my against Diane
0: Reem, you and I, buddy, hell yeah, okay, okay. 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 all
1: right. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll do hardball, you know, <laughs> version, you know, indie rock, curveball. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry. Uh, so no, you, I completely lost my thought,
0: but it's good. It's all good. Um, H- how do we? How oh, do we survive in this day? You're an entrepreneur. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so <clears throat> you think quick. You, you have to think fast, um, regardless of what's being
1: thrown at you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We're. Su- Go ahead. Oh, we're, we're smaller. Um, we can change to a, to uh, an evolving industry quicker than major labels can, and we have, and we've proven that. Um, the, if you look at the history of just the record business, really, in all honesty, it's only like 50 years old, right, 60 years old maybe? Um, and, it, and it's like the snake. It just slithers back and forth, and it, it changes formats every decade. It, it changes who are the who are the gatekeepers and who are the key players all the time, you know? And so the, you're seeing this changing of the guard right now. And the guard may have already changed, and they're, they're trying to buy their way still there, but in all essence, it's, it's somewhat gone. The old day of the record business is gone. You know, um, I tell artists this now. It's like, the Militia Group, we're no longer a record company. We're an artist development company. We partner with you, and we develop revenue streams for you. We're your partner. We provide services for you in developing your career. What services do you need that we can provide? Maybe on a minimal point, it's like, all right, we'll just do your records, we'll, and we will market your records, and we'll distribute your records, and that's all you need. We can create a deal to shape that, you know? Maybe your band, you don't need money up front. You don't need an investment. You just need some services provided for you. We can cater a deal for you for that, you know, if we believe in your band, obviously. Um so you kind of have a pricing structure based upon. it. It's kind of like building your hamburger. Yeah, absolutely. In, in a
0: sense, yeah, because not to suggest that military group's a hamburger, but I'm just saying. No, but but uh, Sandy Cooper. T- yeah,
1: sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, at the same time, it's like it's like, you know, what's what services do you really need? If you need investment in your career, you know, by all means, we can do that. Um, but like any partner in the business that you do, you want them to actually be able to make their money back and and. Record companies can't do that just on records alone. And as much as I uh, laugh at the term 360 deal that major labels kind of are they, they all laugh. I laugh about it because I think it's hilarious because it's scaring all these new bands off and we're just getting more deals out of it. Because look, yeah, look, at the end of the day, if you just want to do the records, absolutely. But I tell the artists, look, just so you know, I'm your partner. You know, We would love to be involved in publishing with you. Um, we would love to be involved in merchandising with you. We would love to provide services for you. One-stop shop. Not take these rights. Uh, and then cross collateralize everything so that you never make money but operate a separate entity that does the that does co-publishing deals and operate a separate entity that does merchandising deals that's not crossed with the records but you're getting a better deal across the board because you're sharing with one partner that is investing in your career that has a, a livelihood, a lively stake in their career. I don't have a huge roster I don't have a hundred bands. My identity is in how successful our bands are, you know so I it, if you want us to take a real investment, you want any partner to take a real investment in the career. Give them the opportunity to, to actually de- develop those revenue for you. You know, um, we had a joint venture with BMG Publishing. We signed about half our roster to that. BMG got acquired by Universal, so we exited that deal and learned our lesson in joint venturing with major label publishing companies. Um, and now we just have a publishing joint venture with with uh, Razor and Tie, our distributor, and are able to do co-publishing deals at. Real, uh, fair, independent label-sized deals, um, terms with any of our artists. You know, we're not looking for five albums or anything like that. We'll do we'll do a co-terminous deal with the record deal. Uh, we'll do more than a share fair uh, a fair share of advances, um, and then you add a whole other team of of film and TV placement people. You know, if we can be a one-stop shop to music supervisors that are placing music in film, television, advertising, video games, it is it makes their job 100 times easier and it it develops and it trains them to come back to us because they know it's just a one-stop shop one thing that we did when we had we had this band umbrellas sold about 10,000 records um wonderful really indie kind of i always thought it was like a modern day smiths with you know kind of just mopey type indie rock type stuff uh but we we we've received a couple placements and they were going to place it one more time on gray's anatomy and they came to us and they said hey well if you waive the master usage fee um, we'll place it on the front page of iTunes. And I was like, absolutely. We wouldn't be able to do that unless we had a co-publishing deal with the artist as well. But we were able to, excuse me, waive the, the master fee in, in return for that. And the band saw 30,000 downloads in that single, you know, mm-hmm. and plus like another 5,000 album downloads. That's something that we could not have done it, unless we were a partner across the board. The other advantage to any band, if, if your partner is involved in multiple levels in your career, I want to go out. I want to sell. My, my goal, my desire is to sell CDs at like seven, $8 in retail. Mm. You go to a retail, you can buy a CD for seven, Very eight dollars. But the major labels say, which I think is an inappropriate argument, is oh, you're devaluing the cost of recorded music. I'm like, ha, it's already free to kids. If, if you Google, I shouldn't even be saying this. If you Google <laughs> Copeland, if you Google Copeland, on the first page, you can find three BitTorrents where you can download their entire discography in a zip file. Three clicks. Three clicks and I'm out all my money. So like, well, well so is the band. So is the band, but uh, you know the band can fortunately make up for that by touring and selling merch, and, and that's their livelihood. And look, I'm not I'm not about trying to like take away from their ability to create a career by any means, but at least give us the, the opportunity to invest in your career and, and see that investment back. And and part of doing that is is being involved on m- multiple levels. You know, I want to be able to sell digital download of albums for five to six dollars and CDs for eight dollars in stores, but I can't do that unless I'm making up my margins elsewhere. And look, we don't have a huge overhead. I don't have this, like, insanely sweet office You're on the 52nd floor. And, yeah. Well, he's no longer there. But, <laughs> and, and maybe there's a reason. But, <laughs> but true, it's like... <laughs> kind of the point. But, yeah, the whole idea is, look, the, the record companies should go back to what they were. A small overhead, m- lean and mean, tight ship, bust your ass, no sleep. Work for the bands you work with. Be a true partnership. We've done fifty-fifty net splits. We're happy to do that. Just let us be a part of your career. You know, work. We can only work as hard as you are working. You know, if you work hard and you lead the charge, we'll be there right beside you. You know. Do you uh, have you read? Uh, do you read many uh, music
0: history books? You know, uh, uh, like
1: Mansion on the Hill.
0: Yeah, just like just tons yep. of things. The about operator. The, yeah, the big David days, Deathens, the so. Hitman and all that uh-huh. stuff. Like that. okay. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Um, I was at a, a Rock Hall event, a lecture the other day, and uh, uh, it was John Gorman who, uh, who basically made WMMS here in Cleveland, what it was back in the 70s and early 80s. And, uh, you know, number one radio station in the nation, it was, you know, Broke Bowie, Broke Springsteen, Broke, all this other stuff. So there was a guy in the audience that used to work for him back in the day, and he's he in his 80s by now, and he got up and he started saying, where the hell are all those bands today? He's like, where's the Led Zeppelin? Where's the Who? Where's the arena bands? Where are those bands that were rock gods back then? Where's where is where is that band? They're not there anymore. These bands today, they're gone. They're here. They're gone. They're here. They're gone. So, you know, you, you were talking about the 360 deal. You're talking about the way you partner with bands now. Is it possible to even have in, in this kind of business setup a band even get to that kind of level anymore, or is it really everybody's got to readjust their their idea of what a hit or a success as a musician. Is.
1: Yeah, I think um you go back to like when Jimi Hendrix was successful when he was playing music, he was successful. He was playing I think halls like to like four thousand people a night, two thousand people a night, you know? Um and I think that's what that's the ideal of where bands should get to, you know. Um are the arena days gone? I don't know. They might come back. They might they might they might not, you know. Um, I think a band that's going to fill a room of 50, 20, 20 to 50,000 people, um, though I really don't know any band that can draw over 50,000 except like Green Day, at like Giant Stadium or U2 or something like that. But those are bands obviously from pre-internet and all that. New bands. Can new bands sell at Arena? Possibly, but it has to be more than just a band, you know. It has to be this experience. It has to be this show. Radiohead or something like that. Muse. Muse, yeah. You know, Um, And if you see those bands, um, Muse especially, I mean, they came out with such an attitude that they were going to be this larger-than-life arena rock band, and they were, you know, and and I think they're one of the bands that had the talent and the ability to actually back it up, Um, but should that be in in kids' minds right away when they're speaking bands... No, I don't think so. I think the goal should be like, you know, look, let's get to 50, 100,000 records, and let's develop a career being able to play, you know, House of blues size venues around the U.S. Anything bigger than that is, is icing on the cake, but I think that's the goal of what bands need to look for these days, you know? Um, again, kind of the idea of trying to sell 10 million records is it's just, it's not really there anymore. I mean, I, I don't know what, going back to your question b- between what a major label can do that an indie label can't, not to give them too many carrots, but yeah, they, they have a much better ability to get your video on MTV and have a much better ability to get a, a song added to a commercial radio. However, in regards to rock music, do those two mediums have as much effect as they used to have? No, not necessarily. I mean, TRL went from being viewed seven eight 800,000 people every day to like 300,000. And, you know, I, I distinctly have... I've had a band. I had a joint venture with a major label with a band that was on TRL I think half a dozen times over a year and they still couldn't sell over two hundred fifty thousand records. It says a lot, but you've got artists like Sufjan Stevens that don't get any exposure or anything like that. That's really just all press and mm-hmm. online and, and word of mouth, and can still sell two hundred to three hundred thousand records. Plus, he owns his records, you know. So he's making it. It's like, you f- look, it's like all right. The artist should own everything and and build their team around people that are going to work for them. You know, it's like, all right, I want that distributor, that label, you know, that PR guy, and, and that, ra- you know, all these independent radio people that used to work in major labels, they're now independent now, we can hire them, we have hired them, Juliet and the Licks, we had Juliet and the Louis- Juliet Lewis, do a runaround, and we, we had, um, we had to go like we basically introduced her to radio by, by taking her to all the PDs and MDs at all stations, doing an interview on the morning show, saying hello, playing a couple songs, and that's how we introduced her to it. Her. We just did that and we just left it at that, you know. Because I did was like let's just introduce her and build it up. But these people were able to get all these the I mean the those top line uh, radio promoters that once worked in major labels are now independent and now can be hired by independent labels, you know. So let's talk about developing artists. You've got a bunch of
0: new releases coming out. On yeah. the group, so let's play two tracks. I know. And now you're going to be playing favorite. You know, like you're going. Some bands going to be emailing you saying, "What? So you, t- you played the one on the podcast. You didn't play us. Does that mean?" So um, I-, I don't want to be putting yourself in a really un- unfair political uh-huh. situation. So um, just, just uh, uh, tell me, tell me, uh, you know, to uh, to the the most recent releases that you are new bands that maybe our, our listeners haven't heard
1: uh-huh uh one of them is we shot the moon uh which is uh, if you recall a band called waking ashland they're on tooth and nail records and then immortal uh this is jonathan jones the singer of waking ashland's new band and uh, after that band kind of departed with creative differences he basically took up right where that left off and wrote what i would Almost probably have been the next Waking Ashland record, but he just started We Shot the Moon with a new lineup of kids. He had the band had played their last show in Japan. He came home to San Diego, was trying to figure out what he was going to do next creatively. Got a call from his friend Dan in Sherwood, and Dan's mm-hmm. like, Let's go co write some songs. And what came out was We Shot the Moon. Um, and he's literally, as soon as he started the band, he recorded a record and left for tour and he hasn't, and he hasn't gone off the road since, you know, it's now may he's, he's already done 175 dates as of being eight months in a band. You know, his record just came out last week, physically in stores. Um, and we're excited. He just he, he did a tour with uh, Sherwood and the Matches, and now he's on tour with Holiday Parade, a really cool unsigned band from the southeast. And then he's about to do a month with everybody else and do some warp tour dates. And oh, so he's gonna gonna do some keep building up. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. He just filmed the video for uh, this track "Sway Your Head," uh, which will be his first single. And we're excited to make fans and, and keep building it up on a step by step basis. You know. And um, the second song, second band. Uh, the second band I would say is the New Frontiers. Mm. Uh, the new frontiers is, uh, I would say, they're from Dallas, and they're definitely kind of in that kind of old country indie rock type vein thing. A little bit of slide guitar, a little bit of piano, keyboards. Um, I, you know, you know, I described it perfectly. It's it's those 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 kids out there who grew up listening to Copeland, uh, but discovered Wilco, discovered Ryan Adams, discovered these um, more I don't know, just more established kind of really wonderful songwriters, and. And it's for those fans that that want something in between that you know, and I think New Frontiers really fits that void. Uh, they write incredible songs. They, they've toured really hard over the last six months. The record also just came out. Uh, we, iTunes picked it as one of the 40 albums to feature for $5.99 uh, over the past month, and it's been selling incredibly well through iTunes. It's charted in the top 50 on the rock charts, and and it's actually came in on the new alternative artist charts on Billboard as well. So. Uh, it's off to a really good start, and we're really excited about it. Yeah, Pace Magazine uh, has been really supportive of the band. I'm not getting upset. Uh, uh.
0: They're not even in our field, so I don't care.
1: So I'd, I'd say those two bands are, are with the records that just came out that I'm really excited about. you know
2: slow your head, move your feet, wake yourself from the sleep. If there's a day, there's a way you can get yourself there. Golden smile, you got style that they can't take away.
0: be CDs in three years? <laughs>
1: uh, it definitely has an end life. Where that will be, I, I don't exactly know for sure. And I'm sure the the uh, Universal will probably decide that before any of us follow. You so know? they'll decide for the rest <laughs> of the industry? <laughs> I think so. Uh our new releases, as of late, have about a fifty percent digital, fifty percent CD sale rate, oh. which is pretty and high. And the industry,
0: stand, I think, the RIA just released a released a report saying that's like about twenty three percent of yeah. So, so I guess so you you're above that. Wow. We're,
1: we're above that. Double. Um, it's because look, I mean, if you go into Best Buy, you've you've got maybe a two thirds chance of finding the CD you want. If you go on iTunes, you got a one hundred percent chance of finding the CD. Um, so, just naturally, iTunes will always sell more because they have more. They it had. The stock and the quantity is never an issue because it's always there. Um, the the CD may not ever one hundred percent ever go away. Uh, it'll always be a part of something else. I think that you know we need to start sending to retail something like artist packs. You know, for fifteen dollars you get the T-shirt, the CD, um, a sticker, and a button. You know, what I really want to do, and and we're in the middle of just developing this right now, is you'll be able to the militia group pre-order the new. You know, Somerset album, and for an extra 10 or $15, you get the T-shirt, you get the sticker, you get the poster, and you get tickets to next week's concert, you know? It's these packages. It's all in one thing, you know? And when you pre-order the physical album, which should be this really cool limited edition package, you'll also be able to, get to, be able to download it right then and there. Um... I think it's giving kids something more beyond just the recorded music that makes them actually want to own something. But
0: you don't know? you set yourself, I mean, would the argument then be maybe by somebody who's old school then saying, all right, you're more or less spoiling them to get the release out now, to get them to buy the release now by giving them all this extra stuff. So when the next one comes out, how do you top that? Are you continually, you
1: know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know if that's necessarily an issue trying to top it, you know? Um, it's, I mean, will they ever become? You know, it's kind of like you take a you take a
0: medication, and after a while, your body gets immune to it, and you mm-hmm. got to up the medication. So it's like, okay. are we kind of doing the same thing with? You get this, you get that, you get this, you get that, and then all of a sudden next year or two years from now, the the consumers are going to want this, that, this, this plus that, and this. And why?
1: I don't. I don't necessarily just to know. sell a record. I don't really. I don't really know. Again, you know, just the value of recording music in the consumer's eye is 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 next to nothing. Um, so we need to just package it with other different aspects and whatever kids want, you know. Um, if one year it's a T-shirt and next year it's a inflatable pillow, you know, <laughs> whatever they want, you know. It's like like t- does it with tube socks. Yeah. Right. Uh, to me, I would go to the artist and say, "What do you want to put with your your recorded music? You know, what what other added value do you want to do in there?" We started creating these. Um, like speaking of just other forms of revenue that we're developing for artists, uh, we started to create these search and win sites in conjunction with Google that basically brands it to an artist. And is, and the artist gets paid for how many click-throughs that people go to the search and win site. And we give them, you know, extra posters, extra stickers, whatever you have lying around just to pass out, to, to send out to, you know, it, it's complicated to as to how it works. But basically, it's this other source of revenue that, that we can develop for artists that uh, is entirely just online. You know um, Sharing the advertising revenue from YouTube is, is, I think will eventually be another source of revenue. I think it's just, um, are you doing that now? We are, but it's very minimal. It's a very mm-hmm. minimal amount of money. But you know, partnering with brands, partnering with you know, like I was talking to this international band about releasing their new album as a sh- a really sh- I really don't want to give this idea away, but it's awesome. It, releasing it as a hang tag on all the new fall line of clothing with a specific clothing brand. And then we would just do the digital records and maybe ship out a few thousand CDs. But the idea is we wouldn't have to spend any money because this brand would be financing the whole thing, so to speak. Uh, we'd be able to get rid of 100,000 albums or more through this particular brand, which would eventually just make the band a bigger band, you know. And if we got to sell 10,000 CDs on the side, but there was no expense up front for us, then we'd make our money back, you know. Or it'd be it just an advantageous, you know source of revenue for us look we don't need a we don't need to sell millions of records to make money you know it's like again our overhead is so low that um you know I, I think artists expectations need to kind of come down a little bit as well you know it's like you don't need to sell you know millions of records to make a career copeland was a perfect example of that they still are they can go out and sell house sell out house of blue sides venues around the u.s off selling a hundred thousand records on an indie and they can they make a better living on a better living on the road than ninety percent of bands on major labels, you know. If you can just budget accordingly and, and you know, <laughs> live minimally on the road, you can make a living at this. You can absolutely develop a career off making music uh, on an independent label if you if you budget accordingly.
0: Ten years ago, bands the lead singer, the guitarist, there's always the one person in the band that hopefully there's one person in the band that's the business person, you know? And uh, they didn't really need to know much about the industry. Mm-hmm Put out record in whatever format, sell record, get royalty payments, maybe a little licensing, make money on road merch. That's it. That's all you need to worry about. Now Mm -hmm. today, you just rolled off a litany of about a dozen or so different avenues of revenue. Mm -hmm. So is there now a new responsibility for bands to be a lot more business savvy than ever before, you think? In order to understand it, so they're not sitting there looking like you know, deer in the headlights to you when they're sitting in your office.
1: Well, um, kind of like y- yes and no. Um, it's, it, it's 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 got to be that medium. You know, there are bands we've worked with that I would say have been so overly business oriented that it's affected their songwriting craft. You know, it's never been discussed before here. It's interesting, really. Yeah, it's I, I can distinctly think of a band where where. All they want to do when they get on the phone is talk business, is talk sound scan, is talk this. Quite and and me even as you know someone who's in the business kind of gets sick of that. Like I don't want to talk about that all the time. <laughs> I'd rather talk about really great records, like really great songs, you know. Um, and obviously, there's the reality of the business. We all want to put food on our table, but it's um it's I think that does that can definitely affect an artist's songwriting ability sometimes. You know, if if an artist is so concerned about writing a song to be on radio to To reach X number of sound scan, it, it does affect, you know, whether they're actually really going to write a great record, you know? And at the end of the day, um, I don't know. Jimmy world clarity is a really great example of, of a phenomenal album that came out at a time that where not only did the label not care about them, it didn't really appear that the music scene, the music world at that time really knew who they were. But if you were like me and maybe 30,000 other people that, that bought that record when it first came out, that, or if you're like me and the, the thirty five other people I saw Jimmy at World with at the bottleneck in nineteen ninety eight. By the way, I just saw him for the first time since then, about a month ago. <laughs> it's a like bit a ten year break, but um <laughs> but if you're like that, like like you love that band and, and you were the, the you were part of the, the scene of kids that kept the momentum going into their next record. Um even though they got dropped by the major and all that, like it statistically they should have not continued, you know? Um, But they did, because they wrote a phenomenal record. And though it didn't scan a lot at the time, over time, it it has done really, really a world. Um, Weezer's Pinkerton is another great example. Mm -hmm. It came out to not a commercial success, but if you're like me and maybe, I don't know, the 80,000 or 100,000 other people that got it around then, um, you loved it. You thought it was a phenomenal record. You thought Rivers was bearing his soul to the world on this record. And you were moved by it, and you were moved by the honesty and and the wonderful... Tones the the lack of overproduction, the lack of this Pro Toolsiness that that is, is smothered all over records. Now that this was this really wonderful album, and slowly over time, I think it's now gone gold, if not platinum. You know, and it wasn't an overnight thing, but I guess well, what I like to see in those records is like, um, look, you know, great. Mu- I, I really hope with the advent of mu- advent of the internet and media and everything else, is that great music will prevail. Um, it'll it'll provide the opportunity for kids at a younger, younger age to get into really great music and independent music before younger than they ever could before. You know, when I was fourteen, the only access I had to independent music was, you know, second nature fanzine that was in Kansas City that exposed me to whatever was hip and cool at the time, you know? But now kids can go on the internet and find out about these bands way earlier on. So the the plus or downside is that if you're a really cool band, you can become the coolest band in the world in a month and it may not stick. Uh, but the advantage is you can you can gain a lot of fans and gain a lot of momentum and gain a lot of traction and 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 add longevity to your career without necessarily committing to a major label
0: kind of a sideball question kind of it was kind of based upon what we were just talking about a little bit earlier uh, about the revenue models and stuff like that and i 'm just curious if you read left Sits letter you read you read hits daily double uh-huh,
1: okay any industry blog yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> what? Uh, it's just I don't know. It's just funny. Like, uh, like I think you're interviewing Bryce from The Rocket Summer later. Yeah. Like Bryce, this is an amazing quote in this alternative press.
2: Yeah, Bryce.
0: probably uh, what the, the one about uh, this uh, song is not a business plan. That quote. Oh, hold up, man. I gotta find this. It's really worth it. I promise. I here. promise it's worth it. No, no, it's all good. It's
1: in the middle. Because I did pull one of the quotes out that was in this piece. It says, attention, all bands. Keep on worrying about your sound scan numbers, MySpace friend counts, and radio spins. If you're looking for Bryce Avery, AKA The Rocket Summer, he'll be over here making music. I love that. To me, that sums it up. You know, it's like, <laughs> as much as I am, for better or worse, a part of this thing called the music industry, I definitely love to deny it. <laughs> I definitely love to like say, like, look, my identity is not my job. My identity is being a part of the community of Long Beach. But, I, but, I, look, I am a part of this music community and I do read these blogs. So, continue. I'm sorry. I but cut you off. <laughs> Hits Daily Double. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. So, so, okay. Um, uh, digital downloading, paid mm-hmm. version, not illegal. Mm-hmm. Okay. The two models. And everybody's got an opinion of which one going to win. Is oh, it the it's... iTunes, Amazon, 99-cent single, or is it subscription, get everything you want? Which one's better for you as,
1: as an independent label? Which one do you prefer? Why can't you offer both? Why can't you give the consumer the choice of both? Um, I think iTunes has been really—look, iTunes is great. Uh, they've been really great to us. They they really have a true editorial staff in the sense that, look, they'll place music on the front that they love, not necessarily based on sales. And it's, it's true, like, editorial. It's, it's not like... like
0: a, they really do treat it like an indie record store. Absolutely. Kind of, with that absolutely. philosophy, the love of music.
1: Yeah, I don't think you can buy your way onto the front page of iTunes yet. Uh, <laughs> though there might be some Steve Jobs stuff going on at the top that I don't even know about. But, okay. But uh, <sighs> iTunes has been great for us though I am really excited about competition as well like Amazon to get more in there. Um, the one thing I would really like to change about iTunes is the 99 cent thing per song. I think you got to change it. I think I think you got to have the ability for other bands to developing talent. I dude, I just want to sell the CDs at 4 or 5 bucks for the first 6 months. Like dude, nobody knows about this band.
0: So you want to offer the songs at a lower rate if, I, for the, the newer artists. Songs and the albums. which has been Absolutely.
1: discussed. Absolutely.
0: Why, know, why Janet can't, Jackson dollar $1.99 versus
1: Yeah, look if you want to do that great, you know. Look, but you know the artist and the artist partner of the label should have every right to to retail the music where they want to re- when they want to sell it at. You know, um, excuse me, almost my voice broke there. But yeah, absolutely. Um, for instance, we we had this the new frontiers album in this five ninety nine program with iTunes, and and I absolutely saw the reaction to it. We sold three thousand records of a band that had done um, you know some touring and was on the up and up, but would not have sold that amount had the record been nine ninety nine. And I think it's absolutely worth it for new artists to come out at a, quote-unquote, developing artist price out the gate. Because, look, I mean, like any new artist, you've you, you got to give kids an incentive to take a chance on it.
0: I've always kind of thought that the the downside of some of the models that have been for the subscription model, you pay $9.99, it's an e-music model, more or less. Yeah. 9 dollars well, a month, you get anything you want.
1: I have issues with e-music, but that's all whole the story. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, We'll make that for our Dissing the Industry podcast. Oh, well, I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, w-
1: with. All right, so eMusic is a subscription based model. You know, right, where you right. get, like, I think there's different levels, but something to the effect of, hey, you get 40 tracks a month, but for paying 10 bucks a month or right. something like that, right? Um, the problem is, whereas from iTunes, the label's roughly getting back between 60 and 70 cents per download, from eMusic, they're getting back between 20 and 30 cents. Now, granted, that has come up a lot recently. It's, yeah, it's yeah. coming up to like 40 or 50 cents as of late, but. The one issue I had with 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 eMusic was it, it appeared that they were selling our our content dirt cheap and providing us next to little revenue flow through, so they could build up their subscription numbers, so they could spin the company to some bigger corporation. Got it. The turnover. I don't know if that happened or not. And 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 to to eMusic's credit, they've actually brought the price per per download up a lot. Um, but we got in the in the the um, tradition. Uh, the rotation, so to speak, of instead of providing e music with brand new content, we'd provide them with titles that were at least six months old. So mm-hmm. the idea is, if you're a subscription based yeah, you could buy, you could get into that, um, and it could work. out Look, I think there's other subscription models that can work outside of all that stuff. You know, the ones that I don't the ones that I don't agree with
0: that I just I uh, just to kind of put my personal two cents in there are the ones where you pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. But then once you stop paying. The subscription. Oh, yeah, the you songs go away. Yeah, that's and this yeah. is like kill home taping kind of thing
1: back in the eighties when they were your trying. entire your entire catalog's gone. Yeah, I look. I think the reality is when like you've got an iPhone. I want to talk to the person who sucks up for that. That's okay. What I mean. Okay. So you've got you've got an iPhone. I've yeah. got I've got a BlackBerry. Uh, this BlackBerry, I put in a two gigabyte media disk into it. Within five to ten years, you'll be able to hold a terabyte, if not five hundred terabytes, mm-hmm. in your mm-hmm. hand. When you can hold five hundred terabytes in your hand, you can hold almost every book ever written in your hand, if not every song ever written in your hand. So the idea of storage—media storage—by like the way, but it is so good.
0: That's a whole. <laughs> big, that's another. That's another podcast. <laughs>
1: As if kids care. As if kids care about forty-four K. <laughs> They don't. They just don't pay. It's so weird. I I wish they paid attention, but they. Okay, they so you can put everything in there, right? Yeah. So once once you have the ability to store the entire knowledge of the world in your palm, of your hand, um, I think we will go to a utility type subscription based model where you we pay. You'll pay your monthly music bill. Like know, a cable and, bill, or and you'll just get all the music you want. You know, um, that might be a further further off than we than then and i think people are pushing it further off because they want to make as make up as much revenue in the meantime for it until we get there but i think that's eventually going to happen you know you'll be you'll be, but there'll be hmm, before that time i think you'll you'll even though you'll have all the storage on your hand you'll be able to walk into a store and hear a song and i think you can already do this in japan by the way um, of course, hold your phone up. You know, or, or it won't be your phone at that time. It'll be your your buddy. You know, your little buddy. <laughs> you got your little buddy. it Holds everything. Trademark. It'll be your keys to your car. It'll be keys to your door. It'll be all that stuff. You know, your credit card. Um, and you'll be able to hold it up, and it'll hear like two seconds of the song, and like it'll like, oh, that's so and so. You can own it right now for, you know, a dollar if you want to buy it. You know, and you can buy right there on your phone. You know, and I think whoever plays that song in that overhead company will probably share in that revenue as well. There'll be there'll be a variety of different models and. To me, like, the idea of, like, discussing about these, like, subscription-based models, I mean, to me, like, they all can exist, you know? It's like, there's, like, like going back to, like, being a band and the advent of, like, records don't sell anymore, so develop your own business model, you know? Maybe you just go get a financier and you get someone to fund your career and you just hire a label um, as a retainer and they get a distribution fee. Maybe just go directly to a distributor and you just hire a manager who's on salary that also acts as your label. And then he hires the right PR guy, he hires the right radio guy, and you just build your team. But it's exactly who your team wants it to be, you know? Um, Again, going with that, idea of being more niche-oriented. It's more just pick and choose, you know?
0: So we, for the last question, we started off with what in God's name made you want to start a record company? So I must end with, considering the music industry today and the state of technology and how you know it's 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 almost like we're in a huge tidal basin and it's waves are coming and going and waves are coming and going and we're all just mm-hmm. kind of going along with it what in god's name makes you want to stay in a in this career running a record company
1: uh it's the only thing i know how to do just kidding uh <laughs> <laughs> let's see i dropped out of college like look mom got to do something right uh <sighs> at the, end of the day, I, I mean, I really do love music. I lo, I lo, I think being able for anyone being able to make a living, uh, honest living, working with any creative medium isn't is a pure blessing. You know, it's an absolute blessing, um, and I feel really thankful for that. You know, I, I look at the quality of my life, and yeah, I granted I and I'm sure a lot of people have had opportunities to jump into bigger and bigger, th- bigger and larger things. You know, we've had opportunities to be more in depth with a major label or or have a lot more comfortable life in that aspect or, or go join some other bigger, larger team. But I, I, at the end of the day, I you know I look at my life I'm like, I live 0.7 miles from my office. I ride my bike to work. Um, I, I work for myself. I, I live in a loft that I really like. I um, I live in a community where I, I know the people. I, um, I know people from outside the music. I, I interact with a lot of people outside of the music industry in my community and I like that. I like being a part of, Um, more of a community-based life. So, yeah, I I think it just comes down to quality of life. Um, Yes, I love putting out records for bands. I love um, being a partner with bands and being a part of developing their career. No, I don't need all the credit for it. No, I don't need to be pat on the back and told, good job for it, you know. Um, If that's what you're getting in for, (laughs) you'll never get it, so don't worry about it. But just like, look, I mean, I just get stuck being able to be a part of creative mediums and help creative people do what they do, you know. It's like... Um, yeah, I, I, my, I I feel like it's the balance of both best parts of my brain. You know, I I enjoy going into the mastering session with the record and making it sound as best as it can and jump out of the speakers. But I also really do enjoy crunching numbers and making it work so that, um, the artist and the label can develop revenue off selling recorded music or whatever it is they do. You know,
0: I really appreciate you coming in today. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with everything and, uh, and best of luck with the with the new the next generation of bands yeah
1: break yeah thanks Mike um I feel uh, it's been a really fun ride the last ten years and I feel now more than ever we're putting out some of the best records we've ever put out we've got Love Drug in the studio with Michael Beinhorn we've got the Appleseed Cast in the studio we have Dennis and Whitmer in the studio again we just released records from We Shot the Moon the New Frontiers Driving East we just signed a couple new bands one for the team and the Somerset and. Uh, I'm excited for the next year. I, to me, like all these changes in the music industry, I will end with this. Uh, I get more excited about than anyone because it allows us and the artists we work with now to create our own business models. To say how do we operate and, in a sovereign manner, and we do not have to buy into the major label game. We don't have to do that, you know. And I, and I think now more than ever, artists are smarter. I think they are. They do get it. They do see the um, through the 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 cloud of smoke that happens at those bigger companies and they realize that they don't necessarily need it as much as they do anymore you know
0: best of luck to you we'll have to come back in
1: about 2 years and yeah we'll recap we'll listen to this and <laughs> and, I, and I'll be like I changed my mind <laughs>
0: <laughs> major labels all the way I should have taken that that product manager job at Sony yeah. damn it <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh it's funny cuz it's true mm-hmm.
0: AP podcasts are recorded at Lava Room Recording Studio in Cleveland, Ohio, a New York City quality studio at Cleveland Prices. Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Robert Tenzie, I'm Mike Shea, and this is All My Fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com slash Mike AP. That's S-H-E-A like
2: the stadium, AP.